Am I big? Sure. Am I easy? I don't know. But I'm definitely a schnook. Hey everybody, thank you for listening to chapter 48 of Autobiography of a Schnook. My name is Sean and I'm a schnook. Well, I already said that, didn't I? That I'm a schnook, yeah. Yep, just normal everyday schnook like I'm sure many of you listening are. And um, this is my my story, my thoughts, my observations about music, and basically really my self-therapy. And thank you for being part of it. And it occurs to me this is the first episode of 2024, so I hope everybody has a wonderful new year. Mine has just been eh, acceptable. That's the best I can say. <laughs> acceptable. I'll, I'll take it. I'll take it. Um, I don't know what else to say, but um, um, one thing. Oh, I know what I can say. Episodes of this podcast are likely going to decrease in frequency, and partly because I'm going to be honest, I'm really running out of things that I want to talk about. I'm sure I'll always have a musical topic, but man, this podcast, as much as I want it to be an outlet for my musical thoughts. I want to have something else to go along with it. This isn't going to be just a music podcast. It's called Autobiography of a Schnook, and it's more than just music, right? But the thing is, uh, as you may know, I recently launched a new podcast, and it's called My Weird Record Collection. And um, that I'm not going to run out of material for anytime soon. I'm doing it every month. comes out the 15th of every month at 5 a.m. Central Stranded Time. Yeah, one a month, and assuming that I cover one, maybe two records a month, I'm going to be doing this for close to five years, it looks like. <laughs> but um, I, I've mentioned it before, but that I go to a record store, and uh, I usually visit the miscellaneous section, and they have all these weird, odd records from, say, the 70s and uh, before, like going back to, say, the 40s, which contain things like how to tune an auto harp how to belly dance. Sometimes you see these weird local religious things too. Uh, Oh, what's one that I saw that, that I'm really kind of curious about. Oh yeah. Bob's marriage. What is it? Bob's, Bob's marriage handbook or something, which is basically a preacher talking about how to have a successful marriage. Uh, Spoiler alert. Those of you who listen, um, he ended up divorced, (laughs) but, yeah, and a lot of these records are unintentionally funny too. Like, well, one, oh, one that I'm really, really excited about that's going to be a while. It's going to take me a long time to prep, so it's not going to be covered in an episode anytime soon. Is a series of records that I have from the Columbia School of Broadcasting. Oh my God, they are classic. So that's the kind of thing I talk about on my weird record collection. So check it out. It's on all your favorite podcast providers, I hope. It's on YouTube, it's on Spotify, it's on uh, Apple Podcasts, it's on Google Podcasts for as long as that's going to exist. I know they're converting all that to YouTube, but uh, give it a give it a listen and see what you think. But for this episode, this episode has a theme, and it's New Orleans, because uh, there are a couple of things that happened to me in New Orleans when my wife Lisa and I visited there back in April 2023. In fact, You might notice that the sound on a couple of these segments is different from the sound that you are hearing now, and that's because I recorded them almost a year ago, (laughs) and uh, since then, I've gotten a couple of new plugins that I use in Logic Pro when I record this, 
including a compressor plugin that makes me sound a little bit more broadcasty, a de-esser plugin that makes my S's a little less hissy, and a couple of other things too that I think make the podcast sound a little bit better. So uh, you're going to notice probably a little bit of a change in that regard for going from segment to intro to segment, etc. So just wanted to explain all that. But first thing I want to talk about is an experience that I had that was, I don't know how to describe it. Maybe disturb. I don't know. Disturbing might be kind of too harsh a word, but concerning maybe and um, mind awakening perhaps. And uh, I'm going to call this story. If you don't like black people, sounds controversial. I don't mean it to be, but listen on, friends. In October of 1998, when I moved to New Jersey, I had a job interview with the customer service department of the Asbury Park Press. One question the interviewer asked was, what type of person can you just not stand? Without hesitation, I said, racists. I have zero tolerance or patience for racism. Now, I was offered the job, but I turned it down because by the time they got to me, I accepted another offer, but that's neither here nor there. Other times on the job, that lack of tolerance and patience was tested on a couple of occasions. When working at Sharp Electronics doing tech support for their PDA products, which I spoke about in great detail in a previous chapter, I talked to a customer who was complaining about another tech she spoke to before. She didn't remember who the tech was, but she said she was sure he was black. Now, because our calls were recorded and sometimes monitored, I couldn't just say, oh yeah, how can you be so sure? So I just had to grit my teeth and say, I'm sorry to hear that, but uh, please let me see if I can help you. One day during my brief radio career when I was on the air at The Cat, another job I talked about in great detail in a previous chapter, I took a call from a listener who told me that he loved our station because we actually played music from white artists, and he was so sick of black music. I heard enough black music in my life. You know where? Prison. Again, I was on the job. I so wanted to reason that we didn't really need this listener. And if he was by chance involved with any of our advertisers, do we really want that advertiser on the station anyway? Once again, I gritted my teeth and was as polite as I could be. I said, well, you must hate us on Sundays then because we start Sundays off with gospel music and close with the blues. Which was true, by the way. We had the Paul Harris Gospel Show on Sunday mornings, later becoming the Don Meyer Gospel Show. Both Paul and Don were black. I'm pretty sure they still are. And they played pretty much exclusively black gospel music. And on Sunday nights, there was Basement of Blues, hosted by Mike Saracini, better known as Chicago Slim. Now, Slim was white, and I'm pretty sure he still is as well, but most of the music he played was, of course, by black musicians. It always disturbed me that anybody living at the same time I've ever lived would be so openly racist. One of the reasons I noped my way out of nextdoor.com was that I saw the same things in my own neighborhood, a very diverse part of the north side that is accepting of, well, anybody. There is something that disturbs me more, though, and that's when I'm accused of racism, either explicitly or implicitly. It's happened, thankfully very few times. But those times it did happen, it stung. It stung like hell. I'm not racist. Or at least I hope to God that I'm not. It's been said by wiser people than me that if you're white, you are racist, like it or not. 
that you will have preconceived notions about other races. Is that true? I, I don't know. Truth is, all I care about a person is, is the person in question a good person? I don't care about black, white, green, whatever. And you're probably thinking, what next? Are you going to say you have a lot of black friends? Well, no. Because to be honest, I don't. Or at least not as I see it. I have a few, but not a lot. And I'm not going to enumerate how many. Let's just say I have a few, but sadly not a lot. But also, I don't want to come across as someone who's feeling attacked. Although, to be honest, the times I was accused of racism, implicitly or explicitly, I did feel attacked. The first time, I think it was Thanksgiving weekend 1994. The journalism department at my college hosted an annual Thanksgiving high school basketball tournament. Joliet Catholic, Joliet Central, Joliet West, Providence, maybe a few other local teams I don't recall off the top of my head. The game was covered on both the college's closed-circuit TV station and the radio station. My assignment one night? Help with security by operating the metal detector wand. You know, that thing you run up and down and in front of and behind someone, and if it beeps, it found something suspicious. The department chair told me to let three people in line go by, then scan the fourth, repeat. Let three go, scan the fourth, let three go, scan the fourth. Rick said it's mainly for show. So, there I am, working the security wand. One, two, three, zap. One, two, three, zap. Repeat. All was going smoothly until someone I was about to scan said, You're only doing this because I'm black. Wait, huh? Yeah, I've been watching you. You let the white people go by, so why are you targeting me? I explained, Sir, I'm doing what I was told. Let three go through, scan the next. He said, Yeah, I'll bet. I said, sir, if you're really offended, just go on ahead. I'll let you go. And he did. But before he crossed into the gym, he stopped, turned around, watched me. I did my counting again. One, two, wait, the next person was black. I ushered her through because, well, she was the fourth. Yeah, uh uh-huh. I heard the accuser yell in my direction. Next time there was a lull, I told people I was not doing security anymore. One of my cohorts said, "Uh, you were assigned that and that's what you're sticking with. I explained what happened. Said cohort, um, I really don't remember who it was, said to me, You should have said, you're only saying that because I'm white. (laughs) Yeah, I'm sure that would have gone over well. It's been nearly 30 years and that brief moment still bothers me. Now let's flash forward 28 and a half years, early April 2023. Lisa and I were spending her spring break in New Orleans. It was our third trip there. Now we pretty much stick to the French Quarter when we go there because, well, it's what we know. We know what we like, and the stuff we like is in that southern tourist trap. Would I like to see other parts of the city? Sure, but the fact is, when we examine things we want to make sure we do during our limited time, we just don't really have a lot of time left to further explore. Especially this most recent trip. We were spoiled by the hot tub and heated pool on the hotel's rooftop. Well, actually, our hotel wasn't technically in the French Quarter, but about a block away, just across Canal Street. One day we walked over to the French Quarter and grabbed some lunch and then did some shopping. When we headed back to the hotel, we found ourselves walking up Bourbon Street, which, trust me, is not for the faint of heart. Bourbon Street is frequently compared to Clark Street near Wrigley Field in Chicago, and, well, that's not too far-fetched. Bourbon Street is basically a non-stop, loud, drunken party full of revelers not from the area. Gee, much like Wrigleyville! I can only imagine how rowdy it must be during Mardi Gras. And New Orleans in April is very warm, so Lisa and I were wearing sandals. 
Now, when you're walking down Bourbon Street while wearing sandals, you need to watch every step you make and do everything you can to avoid mystery puddles. Basically, if you see something wet, assume it's a horrible toxic chemical at best, beer barf at worst. So, as we were walking up the busy sidewalk along Bourbon Street, we came upon a rather colorful section of sidewalk with not only multiple mystery puddles, but also a guy sleeping across the sidewalk. I actually walked off the sidewalk and into the street to dodge everything, and Lisa was able to step over the puddles and just walk around the sleeping guy without disturbing him. When I got back on the sidewalk, I heard somebody behind me screaming about someone dissing him because he's black, even going so far to accuse someone of calling him the N-word. Uh, my words, he actually spouted the N-word. I heard his voice walk across to the other side of the street, still loudly ranting. Now, when you hear a lot of commotion, your natural reaction is to look and see what the hell's going on. So I glanced across the street and saw the guy who was yelling, and he was staring directly at me. Yeah, I'm talking to you, white boy, he screamed. You got a problem with me being black? If you don't like black people, stay out of New Orleans! I had no idea what I possibly could have done to set him off. I mean, the guy was behind me, so I didn't even see him until he started ranting. So much went through my mind. What's wrong with this guy? Should I defend myself and tell him I said nothing to him and didn't even know he existed, possibly causing further argument? Or should I just let it go? Well, I said nothing. Interestingly, Lisa was right next to me the whole time and didn't even notice. Obviously, I said nothing, but I also didn't let it go. Had I let it go, I wouldn't be talking about it right now. Instead of letting it go, I thought about it for a while. If I weren't with someone and didn't have somewhere to go, how could I have handled it? Or perhaps, how would I have handled it? Perhaps approach him and apologize for any misunderstanding and assure him that I never said or did anything with any intention to upset him or anybody else? Maybe invite him to join me for some lunch or something, my treat, and talk with him so we could understand each other. Those last three words understand each other, are exactly why I didn't respond to this stranger. Rather than feel attacked, I had to try to see it from his point of view. He felt attacked. Why? He may have been treated unfairly all his life. It's likely that he was the victim of racial discrimination as a norm. Opportunities passed him by in favor of people with a lighter skin complexion. Racial slurs flung in his direction were probably quotidian. With all that in mind, I can't say I blame him for easily being triggered. It's likely part of his everyday life. And I had to keep all this in mind and to remind myself to keep this in mind if this happens again in the future. And be humbled that I have a pretty good life. And wonder if I would if I weren't a white American male. I've walked thousands of miles in my shoes. I have to be mindful that I haven't walked a foot in anybody else's shoes. This stranger in the French Quarter was very right, by the way. If you don't like black people, stay out of New Orleans. It's a wonderful place to visit, and so much of what makes it wonderful was because of the heart, soul, and love that black people have put into it. Now, when this happened to me, I'm pretty sure Lisa said to me, what, what, what's wrong? And I told her, and she said, well, you know you didn't, so don't worry about it. Well, I don't know. I just can't brush it off because it just made me realize, man, stepping in someone else's shoes, I mean, you just don't know what they're going through. So it's something that, that concerns me, and it's something that just stays on my mind. It's like, man, 
you, something you might do might be interpreted as a micro or macro aggression that and you don't even realize it. And, uh, all I can say is I'm definitely going to try to make sure that anything I do is obviously without the intention of hurting others or, um, upsetting others or in other ways, persecuting others. And that's all I can do, I guess. And I just hope everybody else tries to do the same thing. You know, said it before. When you really think about it, all we have is each other. Anyway, having said all that, another interesting thing that happened to me in New Orleans is something that I literally could not ignore, even if I wanted to. Well, maybe I could have, but I might not have liked the results. Those of you who are Peanuts fans, you might remember a story arc that happened, I think, in the 60s or 70s. And you'll understand why I decided to title this next segment unclean Wednesday morning, April 6th, 2023. Lisa and I were in New Orleans for her spring break and uh, we needed to get back to Louis Armstrong International Airport to fly home to Chicago. As usual, I woke up and showered, and as I was showering, I found myself clearing my throat a lot. I mean, I clear my throat a lot more than most people do on a normal day, but even for me, the frequency of my throat clearing was uh, pretty up there. When I stepped out of the shower, I sneezed. Then a few minutes later, I sneezed again. And a few seconds later, I sneezed again. I didn't think much of it, possibly allergies, or maybe the sudden climate change from a cold Chicago to a hot, sticky New Orleans a few days earlier screwed with my sinuses or something. But again, with the throat clearing, I just couldn't stop. The sneezing stopped, but man, my throat was goopy. Was I catching a cold? That's usually a telltale sign. But during the flight home, I did not lose my hearing, which uh, usually happens at least to some degree when I fly with a cold. After we landed at Midway and retrieved the car, we pulled over for some delicious comfort food at Manny's Deli in the South Loop. Man, I was feeling jet-lagged, too. Uh, that is, despite New Orleans and Chicago being in the same time zone and both observing daylight saving time. I just wanted to get home, dump our stuff out of the suitcases, and go to bed. Thursday morning, I got up for work. Thankfully, my job is a work-at-home job, even though the office is in Chicago. Man, though, did I feel terrible. Stuffed up, headache, and a feeling that if I closed my eyes, I'd fall back asleep. Oh, that sounded nice, going back to bed, but nah. Maybe a shower will help, I told myself, which it did, to an extent. But I still felt rotten. But not rotten enough to call off work, especially because I need as much PTO as I can get. Plus, I felt much worse my first week on the job six months before, and I was able to get through it okay. I figured I'd medicate myself the way I usually do when I get sick. Lots of zinc lozenges and lots of cold drinks. With the help of an ice maker my mother got me for Christmas, I was downing ice water as if it were about to be discontinued. By the time I was finished with dinner, I was shivering like crazy. Maybe I overdid it on the ice water? Which is weird, because I usually drink ice water constantly and never get the shivers. Lisa felt my forehead and said I felt a bit feverish, so I took my temperature. 99.4. A little high, but nothing to be concerned about. Still, though, 
elevated temperature, stuffy nose, shivering. I did not like those symptoms. The next morning, I woke up feeling, well, no worse, but still not great. So I took my temperature again. 100.3. Still felt feverish and stuffy, so I took a COVID-19 test, thinking that the same thing would happen as what happened the last several times I took a COVID test. One line. The rule is that if you see even a faint hint of a second line, it means you're COVID positive. These tests can give you false negatives, but they don't give false positives. I waited the 30 minutes as instructed and, clear as day, dark black against white, two lines. Well, damn, COVID positive. Eh, I went over three years without catching it. So I looked at the CDC's recommendations for cohabitation. Um, by the way, I'm just going to interrupt myself right here and say that uh, even though I haven't really thought much about it in the past 30 years, every time I see CDC, the first thing that comes to mind is Cult of the Dead Cow. If you know, you know. But anyway, getting back to the recommendations. Sleep in separate rooms. Clean common areas seemingly every 10 seconds. Don't share anything, including pets. Don't be in the same room together. And the infected person should be masked. Lisa, however, she wouldn't hear of it. She said, I know my body, and if we do follow all these rules, I will get extremely stressed out and I will get sick. But if we carry on as normal, I won't think of it and I'll be okay. Lisa then made a telehealth appointment for me. I spoke to the doctor, told her when my symptoms started, asked what I should do and what medicines I should take, all that good stuff. She repeated what I read on the CDC site and told me to take Tylenol rather than aspirin to fight headaches and fever. Why Tylenol instead of aspirin? Well, aspirin would put me at risk of an upset stomach on top of everything else. After looking at my vital stats, she said that I was eligible for Paxlovid. Uh, translation, I'm a fat ass. She said, how do you feel about that? I don't know whether she meant how do you feel about taking this medicine or... How do you feel about having the qualifications to take this medicine being fat and all? Hell, I've been overweight my whole life, so I answered according to that first interpretation. Hey, if it'll help, then great. Uh, what are the side effects? The doctor said very straightforward and matter-of-factly, nausea, vomiting, and diarrhea. Again, I figured in the long run it's worth the risk. She said, but most people who experience those symptoms aren't sure whether it's because of the medicine or because of COVID itself. Hmm, well, whatever. So the doctor prescribed the Paxlovid, which she told me was meant to stop the virus from reproducing, and I had to start taking it before day five of the symptoms. The first day of my symptoms, Wednesday, was considered day zero. Starting on day six, I could stop isolating, but would need to wear a mask when I'm out and about. No problem, I had to do that for months, a few years ago. In fact, I even wore a thick mask while doing a 15-mile bike ride, and given the terrible shape I've always been in, and that my nasal passages are 80 to 90% blocked and I was fine then, that just tells me wearing a mask isn't the end of the world. On Sunday the 16th, assuming I felt considerably better, I'd be allowed to go out and about without a mask again. Given the situation, though, I didn't really feel too bad. Everybody who said the current strains feel like a cold is right. Which makes sense. After all, the common cold is caused by a coronavirus. I don't know if it's because the strains now are weak, or that I am in overall good health despite my obesity, or that I'm up to date on my vaccines and boosters, but it was pretty mellow considering how the disease affected people three years prior. 
Lisa went out and picked up the Paxlovid for me and was shocked at the price, zero dollars, with a note underneath saying, your insurance saved you zero dollars. Yep, apparently that's how much they want people to take Paxlovid, so much that it's frickin' free. As per the doctor's instructions, three pills at night and three pills in the morning for five days. If I wanted to stop early, that's fine, but if I wanted to make sure that I maximize the ability for the medicine to keep the virus from spreading, I'd better stick it out for five days, which I did. And let me tell you what Paxlovid did for me. It actually gave me what I considered the worst part of having COVID. I didn't have any of those side effects that the doctor told me about, but I did have one that apparently happens to a lot of people who take it. I got what's called colloquially Paxlovid mouth. It left me with an annoying, rusty, metallic taste in my mouth, and I couldn't taste anything for crap. I know loss of sense of taste is also a symptom of COVID itself, but I could taste everything fine until I started taking Paxlovid. And it sucked because Lisa made some really good food for Easter. Well, at least I think it was really good because I could not taste anything. Well, actually, I could taste the really amazing jello she made. Turns out that if something was ultra-sweet, I could taste at least a hint of it. When I called my mom to tell her I wouldn't be making it to her house for Easter because of COVID, she immediately blamed me for not wearing a mask in the plane. Well, if I know how airplanes work, which I might not, I mean, I'm a software engineer, not a pilot, planes have very good air filtration systems. Plus, wearing a mask would not have prevented me from getting sick. Someone else not wearing a mask is what got me sick. And I seriously think I picked it up somewhere on Bourbon Street, which is not exactly the bastion of cleanliness. But Mom wondered aloud if there was still a way I could visit safely, but quickly said, Nah, actually, I don't want to take any chances. I'm having dental surgery, and I don't want to get sick. Plus, my mother isn't vaccinated, and she's 80 years old. Both factors putting it her at higher risk of getting a not-nice case of COVID. Against my better judgment, I told her the things the doctor told me. Usually when I tell mom what a doctor tells me, she gives me all kinds of reasons why the doctor is wrong, why it's important that I find a competent doctor, whatever else have you. I mean, it's not that my mom isn't experienced with medicine, she was a nurse for well over 50 years, but she is so stubborn about a lot of things. One time she was so alarmed by something my doctor said that she told me I better start looking for a new doctor. She advised me to get a doctor from Northwestern, which is one of the most highly reputable practices in the country. Uh, Mom, I got news for you about number one, where my doctor is from, and number two, how she was recently voted best primary care physician in Chicago by a Chicago Reader poll. But anyway, um, as for my wife, um, well, Lisa has an amazing immune system. Last time I knew her to get any kind of viral infection was... December 2001, now that I think about it. Teachers all have a firm belief that after a year or two on the job, you're exposed to so many germs that your body builds up a natural immunity. Well, her first teaching job was in 2004, and she just does not get sick. The only time she gets sick is if she gets some kind of bacterial stomach infection or something, and even that's rare. As I was getting sicker and then getting better, Lisa was not the least bit infected or affected. It's because I work in a germ factory, she said. She's taken many a COVID test, both during and before my sickness, and passed them all with flying colors. Hell, we were even sharing a bed while I had COVID, and she was okay. 
I don't know, I guess I just don't fully understand virology. Again, I'm a software engineer. I can write you some code, but I can't tell you why you don't get my infectious disease. But I could not wait to be done with those Paxlovid pills. Those things are huge, but somehow I was able to swallow them without a single problem. I just wanted my sense of taste back. But within a couple of days of taking that stuff, I was feeling much better. On Tuesday, day six, I put a mask on, took a CTA redline train to the Old Town neighborhood in Chicago, and picked up a brand new bike I bought before our New Orleans trip and rode it home, 7.64 miles, and I felt perfectly fine. Feeling fine enough that four days later, Saturday morning, I took the new bike on a ride up to Northwestern University in Evanston. In fact, the cover photo on the Autobiography of a Schnook Twitter profile is a picture that I took during that bike ride. When I got back to the alley behind our apartment building, I saw that my ride was 14.84 miles. Bullsh**, I said. I went back out on the bike and rode around the block to bring that sucker up to a full 15. And the next day, I took another COVID test and negative. So I ran some errands and grabbed some lunch without a mask on. Again, I mentioned that at least in my experience, people who say that having COVID nowadays is like having a cold are right. And I must emphasize, that's my experience. The truth is, many people are still dying from this disease, but I was quite lucky. It was by far not the worst I've ever felt, but the truth is, it still sucked. I mean, who wants a cold? And just as with a cold, my COVID infection just did not want to die. I mean, I felt much better eventually, but as with many other colds that I catch, there's always one minor symptom that holds on for dear life. Four days after testing negative, there was still a minor cough that reared its ugly head when I least expected it. I was able to work through my COVID infection too, even against the advice of a couple of coworkers who had it and found out the hard way that working through it was a bad idea, but I stuck to my guns. Again, not that it was too hard. Not gonna lie, when I saw that I tested positive, I was a bit worried because my weight puts me at a risk for a not-so-nice experience. Mind you, I am trying my damnedest to shed some pounds. In the last few years, I've cut back significantly on sugar, and lately my portion sizes have literally cut in half. I replaced between-meal snacking with either nothing at all or a serving of fruit, and I walk at least one mile every day, but damn it, I'm still not losing any weight. My doctor once told me that rather than being hung up about my weight, I should focus on just being healthy in general because, well, being thin does not equate to being healthy. And she's right. And thankfully, except for that damn weight, my overall health is decent. I'm not diabetic. I'm not hypertensive. I'm not stressed out. Maybe because of that overall decent health. Plus that I keep myself up to date on vaxes and boosters. And that I keep my vitamin D up. And that I'm just plain not old. I was very fortunate to have such a mellow COVID case. And thankfully, a day or two after my last dose of Paxlovid, my sense of taste returned. But even having such a mellow case that, in reality, was easier to deal with most colds I've had, it still sucked. Would not recommend. So that was April 2023, and it is now Mardi Gras 2024. Uh, this year, that would be February 13th. And I have not gotten COVID again since. And uh, I have flown three times since. Uh, but regardless, I was fine. Lisa was fine. She didn't get sick either. 
And uh, by the way, I apologize for uh, mispronouncing Max Lovid that entire segment. <laughs> Good grief. I finally saw the commercials. But uh, anyway, I'm still bugged by that, even though I've long ago re- regained my entire sense of taste as normal. <laughs> but man, that was brutal trying to eat and everything tasted all metallic and stuff. Uh, I had heard from somebody that those Red Hots candies are a good way to kind of break through that. So I'll, if God forbid I ever have to take Paxlovid again, I'll keep that in mind. And apparently Paxlovid mouth, as it's called, is a lot more common than uh, people let on. <laughs> so yeah, my advice is uh, if you ever have to take Paxlovid, just be prepared to not like how everything is going to taste. But uh, moving on, because I love music and it's uh, probably my favorite part of life, really, I got to talk about music and uh, where better to go to hear music than New Orleans. You're going to hear it. There are musicians on the street everywhere. Uh, They have a great Dixieland jazz scene, obviously, and uh, Zydeco as well. And, uh, oh, by the way, something I didn't mention is that those of you who've never been to New Orleans, there are three places in the United States that I consider very dangerous to go if you're trying to lose weight. Number three on that list, Austin, Texas, because the food is amazing. Oh, number two, right here in Chicago. I was convinced that Chicago is the greatest food place in the world until I visited number one. New Orleans. Oh my God. There is so much amazing food there. Uh, the po' boys are so much better there than you get anywhere else. If you like seafood, you're going to go just batch crazy in New Orleans. The gumbo is amazing. Oh, and uh, yeah, I had heard from uh, Jimmy Bonos, uh, who's a f- well-known Chicago chef here. He used to have a few restaurants called Heaven on Seven, which was kind of like New Orleans style cuisine infused with a little bit of Italian-y kind of thing. But I recently went to a cooking demonstration he did, and he said that if you go to 10 different houses in New Orleans, you're going to have 10 different gumbos. But still, whenever someone says, hey, does anybody have any New Orleans uh, restaurant recommendations? I say any of them. (laughs) Seriously. That is any of the non-chain ones. Like, don't go to friggin' Subway or, say, Margaritaville. Just go to a local place. There are plenty there. You will have an amazing meal. But anyway, back to music. Um, I'm going to talk about a place that whenever Lisa and I go to New Orleans, we go at least once to take in some music. And it's so much fun and such great, great music, too. So uh, listen on, my friends, to a schnook's music. On St. Peter's Street, just southeast of Bourbon Street, is a very nondescript storefront that, quite frankly, looks abandoned. However, it's not abandoned in any way. It's Preservation Hall. Truthfully, though, you'd be forgiven if you were looking for Preservation Hall and walked right past it. It's that easy to miss, and even the sign hanging over the sidewalk is camouflaged by the drab color of the building. Preservation Hall is a very active New Orleans jazz joint that's part tourist trap, part charity. But don't let that phrase, tourist trap, make you think that it's necessarily a bad thing. There's a reason I've been there five or six times in my three trips to New Orleans. 
but several reviews on, say, TripAdvisor will tell you that it's overpriced and you can go elsewhere for better music for cheaper. Of course, one thing that those reviews have in common is that they offer no suggestions as to what those places are. Uh, thanks for the helpful information, folks. When you're actually inside Preservation Hall, you'll see that there's not much to it. You enter through a narrow hallway where you can buy various merchandise, CDs, t-shirts, etc. Yes, they still sell CDs. And then you are ushered to your seat in the main room, which is just... A big open space, really, with bench seating throughout most of the room, including a few benches on the side, along with some standing room. Sometimes they'll seat children on the floor on cushions up in the front row. Up front by where there normally would be windows is where the band plays. Permanent fixtures include an old rustic drum kit, on whose bass drum are the words Preservation Hall Jazz Band. Off to the right is an upright piano. In the middle near the drum kit is a stand-up bass that may or may not be used, depending on whether the band has a sousaphone player. Also up front is an inverted tin derby on a stand. More about that in a bit. There's no amplification in the room. The musics in MC rely only on their own volume and the room's acoustics. When it's showtime, the MC, who is the same person who showed you to your seat, introduces the band, which will consist of a drummer, a pianist, either a stand-up bass player or a sousaphone player, and two or three other musicians who may play trumpet, trombone, saxophone, or clarinet. Some of the musicians may be multi-instrumentalists. Except for the bass player, the band is seated. The band leader for that particular show will say a few words, usually throwing in some crowd-pleasing humor, and will explain the aforementioned tin derby. You will be told that the derby is a tip hat and that its name is Philip. <laughs> See what they did there? Philip the tip hat or fill up the tip hat. <laughs> yeah, I know. Anyway, you are encouraged to throw a few bucks into that tip hat. Now, when I first went to Preservation Hall, there was also a sign up front that gave you a request menu. If you had a request, you had to put a certain dollar amount in the tip hat. The sign read, traditional requests, $2, others, $5. The Saints, $10. Now, here's the thing. You may hear only four or five songs during an hour-long show, but the songs go on for a long time because the band improvises a lot. It's pretty typical for each member of the band to take a solo during a song. What you'll likely see is someone in the band takes a solo, and for the second half of said solo, she or he will stand up and really wail on the instrument, then that same process repeats with each other member of the band. Somebody in the band might sing with the music. Sometimes the song is done entirely as an instrumental. The first time Lisa and I went to Preservation Hall, it was during a spring break trip to New Orleans in 2010. Actually, now that I think about it, all three of our trips to New Orleans were spring break trips. But anyway, um, I remember that the band leader introduced the first number by saying, this song's been performed around town for many, many years. And he said the same thing about the next song and the next. Now, the next song I'm going to do is a song that's been performed around town for many, many years. Hmm. There were a couple of requests that night, including by one person who ponied up the 10 bucks to hear when the Saints go marching in. The band leader improvised a verse about the Saints winning the Super Bowl, which happened just a couple of months prior. The whole town was just full of Super Bowl fever. We told the locals there that it's something they're never going to get over because, well, speaking as Chicagoans, <laughs> Chicago Bears fans are still clinging to Super Bowl XX. 
Now, I just want to make it clear that I hate politics and I really hate talking about politics, even when I'm voting in the booth, even when I'm in line outside the polling place, I hate talking about politics. And I really don't want to discuss politics in autobiography of a schnook. However, I do have to bring politics to this story in order to tell it. During our New Orleans trip in 2023, there was a mayoral runoff election back in Chicago. According to Chicago mayoral election rules, the candidate with at least 50% of the vote wins, but if no candidates get 50%, there has to be a runoff election between the two candidates who receive the most votes. The runoff rule never had to be enacted until 2015 before Rahm Emanuel's second term in office, and it happened again in 2019 when Lori Lightfoot was elected. And it was happening again in 2023 because, well, quite frankly, none of the many candidates in the ballot was particularly thrilling to most people in the city. The two candidates in that runoff were kind of polar opposites in a way. A black man named Brandon Johnson, who lived in one of the roughest neighborhoods in the city and is a former public school teacher, and a rich white man who was looking to do what he did as a superintendent of the uh, Rediscover School District in New Orleans dissolve the teachers' union, and convert all the public schools into charter schools. The two candidates were predicted quite accurately to be in a dead heat in the runoff. We were waiting in line to get into Preservation Hall the night of the runoff. It was actually our second visit to Preservation Hall during this trip. We liked it so much the first time that we wanted to go back. The first performance we attended was uh, pretty typical, four or five songs that went on for a long time, each musician taking a solo, sitting down for a few measures, then standing up for a few measures so he could wail like crazy on his instrument. <laughs> Repeat for each song. Interestingly, they didn't take requests that night. As we were waiting in line the second time we went to Preservation Hall, Lisa was checking the incoming election results. For those of you who aren't regular listeners of this podcast and don't know the gory details of my personal life and those of my loved ones, or if maybe you just forgot, Lisa is a teacher for Chicago Public Schools. If the rich white guy won, her days as a teacher would likely be in jeopardy and she could kiss her pension goodbye that she contributed to. As the numbers came in, it was getting pretty obvious that that was the outcome we were going to have to live with. But it stressed her out so much, so she said, screw it, I can't bother with it, I just need to focus on what we're doing here and try to have a good time. Then the audience from the earlier show started filing out. One guy in the crowd stopped, looked at the line, and said, you're in for a really great show tonight. After that crowd cleared out, we were all ushered inside and led to our seats as usual. After everybody was seated, the hostess announced the band, who was being led by someone named Brandon. Well, at least it sounded like his name was Brandon. It could have been Brendan, could have been Brennan. Remember, at Preservation Hall, there's no amplification. So if someone who was a low talker was speaking and you weren't sitting right up front, you'd have no idea what was being said. But interesting, the leader's name is Brandon, at least we thought. Was that to be taken as a sign? Meanwhile, I was sitting there a little disappointed because it appeared that they no longer take requests at Preservation Hall because I'd really been yearning to hear a performance of St. James Infirmary Blues. But eh, whatever, we're still going to be in for a good show. And indeed, we were. This time, it wasn't the formulaic, we all sing a verse together, then one by one we each play a solo and we stand for the second half of the solo and wail out on our instruments, then jam together before the last verse, lather, rinse, repeat. There was still the usual one song going on for several minutes because of the extended solo, 
but it was more like each song was featuring one member of the band. Brandon, Brennan, Brendan, uh, that guy, told some interesting stories of New Orleans history before each song. Sadly, I don't remember any of them or I'd be happy to share them with you. And so help me God, the third or fourth song in St. James Infirmary Blues. It was a wonderful performance with the trumpet player singing with a dead-on Cab Calloway impersonation, complete with Calloway's trademark, Heidi, 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 ho! After the song was done, it started up again, but in a much more up-tempo Cuban rhythm that sounded like you'd hear Ricky Ricardo sing Babalu at any moment. This time, the song was sung by the saxophone and clarinet player. It rocked! These guys absolutely knocked it out of the park. After the show, I thanked the trumpet player, sadly I've forgotten his name, for not only playing the song I really wanted to hear, but also for delivering a killer performance. Oh man, seriously, I was on top of the world. I couldn't give a rat's ass about the mayoral election at that point. Or so I thought. After we left Preservation Hall, I took out my phone and looked at Facebook and found that while we were enjoying a really great show, somehow Brandon Johnson had barely edged out the rich white guy. It was over. Chicago had chosen its new mayor. Upon hearing this, Lisa collapsed in the fetal position with relief. After a few minutes when she was able to stand again, she said she was in desperate need of a brownie sundae to celebrate. At the next bar we walked past, which, believe me, in the French Quarter was not far, uh, it's mostly bars after all, we noticed that the menu posted on the wall included brownie sundaes. We walked over to that bar and informed the bartender of our need for brownie sundaes. He chatted with us for a few minutes, asked us where we're from. We told him Chicago and that just minutes ago we found out the results of the mayoral election. We told him who the two candidates were. Upon hearing the name of the rich white guy, he said, oh my god, he was running for mayor there? Trust me, you do not want him. Did you hear about the disaster he left behind here? Yep, indeed. But we had our celebratory brownie sundaes. Lisa said it was the best brownie sundae she ever had. I mean, well, it was a very nice sundae. I mean, but I will maintain that the best brownie sundae that I've ever had is at Dairy Star in Lincolnwood, just outside of Chicago on the northern border. By default, their brownie sundaes have both chocolate and vanilla ice cream and nuts, but man, that's too much chocolate. I always get mine with all vanilla ice cream and no nuts. Uh, sadly, they're closed for the season as of this recording. Now, um, where was I going with all this? Oh, uh, right, Preservation Hall. Is it touristy? Perhaps. But FFS, as today's kids say, it's the bloody French Quarter. The entire French Quarter is touristy. But to us... A visit to New Orleans without going to Preservation Hall at least once is like going to London without crossing Abbey Road, or going to Las Vegas without seeing Cirque du Soleil's Love Show, or going to Central Park without paying homage to John Lennon at Strawberry Fields. Hmm. Is New Orleans the only place that Lisa and I go that doesn't involve visiting a Beatles-themed landmark? Ah, well, still, go to Preservation Hall. Anyway, I'm sorry I brought politics into this particular story, but it played an important role in telling the story. Uh, I'm not going to say whether or not I like, dislike, or feel neutral about the job that Brandon Johnson has been doing for not quite a year. If you want to know that, you're going to have to tap into my mind somehow, because I'm not talking about it. Oh, one thing, while I'm on the topic, I do want to basically 
disabuse you of any rumors you might hear. There are people who strongly believe that the mayoral election is always determined by the Chicago Teachers Union, and uh, that is just plain wrong. I think mostly suburbanites claim that. In 2019, the Chicago Teachers Union endorsed, oh, what the heck was her name? Tony Preckwinkle. She lost. And I guarantee you, the Chicago Teachers Union never, ever, ever endorsed Rahm Emanuel. (laughs) But he was elected to two terms, and then he decided he was done being mayor, which is why we ended up with uh, a new mayor in 2019. So um, having said that, that's the end of Chapter 48 of Autobiography of a Schnook. My thoughts, observations, stories of uh, my experiences in New Orleans, and uh, hope to go back again. It's a fun place to visit. And I do hope to visit other parts outside of the French Quarter. So uh, we'll see how that goes. And uh, I'll be sure to tell stories of those other parts as I do experience them. But uh, I'm done talking for now. And um, yeah, that's that's it. So if you want to reach me over email, my email address is autobio at schnookpodcast.com. I'm on Twitter and maybe Blue Sky with the handle Schnook Podcast and the website for this podcast, which includes the online bibliography, or as other podcasts call it, show notes. Uh, I don't know if there will be any for this episode. You can go to schnookpodcast.com. Coming up next, um, I'm not sure. <laughs> I, I rarely know what I'm going to talk about, and I'm not 100% sure when it'll happen, but it'll happen. Thank you all for listening, and uh, special thanks to my wonderful wife, Lisa. And uh, I don't believe this necessarily applies to this episode, but just in case, I just want you all to know that any uh, music and sounds used in this podcast remain the property of their respective copyright holders, and they are used for review and commentary, and no infringement is intended. But anyway, thank you again, everybody, and I'll talk to you again eventually. And just remember, the good goes around... And um, I'm sure if you go to New Orleans, you'll find that to be very true. Just be careful of the food there. It's uh, a little bit too good. All the best, my friends. If I wanted to stop early, that's fine. But if I wanted to make sure that that mother maybe I need another drink.